Welcome to the Grove Church. My name is Caleb Brazier. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, so glad you guys are here with us this morning. We are continuing through our study of 2 Samuel. Um, and we'll be in 2 Samuel 6 this morning. So if you've got one of your Bibles, um, you can open it up, turn there. If you don't, uh, feel free to grab one of the Bibles there next to you. That's not anyone saving a seat. Oh, and 4th through 6th graders are dismissed at this time. Um, there is going to come a day when I will remember to dismiss our 4th through 6th graders. That day is not today, but soon uh, I will remember. Um, so 4th through 6th graders will head out to their class. Uh, Back to 2 Samuel 6. We'll be in 2 Samuel 6 this morning. If you don't have one of the Bibles, you can grab that uh, one next to you. And if you don't have one at home, feel free to take that with you. That is our gift to you. Uh, we are continuing through 1 and 2 Samuel. It's one of the things that marks us here at the church. We are expository preachers. What that means is the majority of time, we're just walking uh, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through different books of the Bible. And so we are uh, yeah, smack dab in the middle of 2 Samuel. We'll be in 2 Samuel 7 next week during Easter, because uh, Easter is coming up next Sunday. Um, it is the Super Bowl of the church. It's the reason why we exist. Uh, without Easter, without the resurrection, uh, we, Paul says, we above all people are to be pitied. Um, so if we don't have next Sunday, we don't have a church. Uh, and so we are excited. We are. This is this is the foundation of who we are, why we are here. And the fact there was an empty tomb um, outside of the Middle East in uh, 2,000 years ago is the reason why there's a church and a middle school in Mineola, Florida today. Um, and so we've got a, a great day planned. We're going to be walking through a fantastic passage uh, as we just sit and reflect on just what the empty tomb accomplished. We've also uh, had these little invite cards out at the connect table. Um, so just an easy way to be able to go and talk to people that you know that uh, that may, aren't Christians, aren't involved in a church. Um, this is one of those times of the year in which people that don't typically come to church might consider it because it's Easter. There's kind of this social understanding. You can wear linen or cool hats or whatever else and just go to church and take a picture in front of an azalea bush or whatever it is people do on Easter. Um, but may, in fact, let their guard down and say, well, maybe I'll give this church thing a try. Um, and so we want to, uh, in essence, kind of uh, grab a hold of that and be able to invite people that typically wouldn't come that might come on this Sunday to be able to hear the gospel and hear the hope of the empty tomb that is offered and extended to them. So uh, go grab a bunch of these. They'll be at the connect table. I think people will also be handing them out on the way out the door and just throw them at people throughout the week uh, and invite them uh, Invite them coming up this Sunday. Um, so 2 Samuel 6 is where uh, we are this morning. We just uh, last week saw that David is now the king of Israel. Uh, so this guy, King David, one of the most popular um, characters in the Bible, has just been anointed king. And he's been anointed king over this uh, divided kingdom. There was Judah and Israel, these uh, two factions within Israel. Uh, and David is anointed king in chapter 5 and unites the kingdom. So David is finally now the king of a unified kingdom. God's kingdom is now visible on earth. God's man is in place. Uh, overseeing God's people, and there is this tangible expression of God's kingdom now on earth for the very first time. Jerusalem was um, uh, established as the capital city in chapter 5, uh, and also the Philistines were driven out, so the enemies were driven out. So we have now the kingdom is established. That was the big thing from last week. So now we get to chapter 6, and the question could be asked, well, now that the kingdom of God is established, what is going to be the first thing that happens? What is the response then that David has whenever this kingdom is now established? And part of that, we'll see, uh, shows us the importance of what David understood needed to take place. And what he does uh, in the very first act, at least in this book, as king, is he goes to bring back the ark 
of the covenant. So we'll be in chapter 6 this morning, uh, and we'll read it and then dive into it. And David again assembled all the fit young men in Israel, 30,000. He and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baal Judah. The ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. They set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guarding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the ark. And David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of fir, wood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah. And God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence. And he died there next to the ark of God. But David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. So he named that place Outburst Against Uzzah as it is today. David feared the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to bring the ark of the Lord to the city of David. Instead, he diverted it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of the Lord remained in his house three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. It was reported to King David, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and had the ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house, the city of David, with rejoicing. When those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. David was dancing with all his might before the Lord, wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of the ram's horn. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter Michael looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of armies. Then he distributed a loaf of bread, a date cake, and a raisin cake to each one in the entire Israelite community, both men and women. And all the people went home. When David returned home to bless his household, Saul's daughter Michael came out to meet him. How the king of Israel honored himself today, she said. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls of his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. David replied to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me over your father and his whole family to appoint me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. And I will dance before the Lord. And I will dishonor myself and humble myself even more. However, by the slave girls you spoke about, I will be honored. And Saul's daughter, Michael, had no child to the day of her death. So the author of First and Second Samuel, who's been with us for any amount of time, has a flair for the risque, controversial, and just uh, jaw-dropping. <clears throat> and it feels like almost every other week we're like, the, the people who claim the Bible to be boring just haven't read the Bible. We've got stories like this in here. And so there's a number of things that we have to do as we jump into it. And one of the things I want to say on the front end is there's a number of things that are difficult um, that as we wrestle through this text. But I want to be just entirely honest with you. Uh, my job is not to make this easy. It's to preach the truth. 
And so as we go through the Bible, my job is to be able to say, what does this say about who God is? And at times it might be hard, at times it might be offensive. That is nothing new. It's offensive to David, even in this chapter. The question that we have to ask is, who is God? And how has he prescribed for us to be able to have a relationship with him and worship him? And so as we go through, this reveals to us a number of things about God that might be difficult. But friends, as we see today, hopefully by the end of it, we'll see that it is good. Uh, as we wrestle through it, uh, we need to be able to interact with and see just who God says about himself because it will lead to us a worship of him and who he is. So as we dive in, there are um, a few things I want us to walk through here in this chapter. The three kind of uh, points we'll be walking through is one, the presence of God in verses one through five. The presence of God in verses one through five. Second, the irreverence of Uzzah in verses six through 13. And finally, the joy of salvation in verses 14 through 23. So the presence of God, the irreverence of Uzzah, and finally, the joy of salvation. So beginning with the presence of God. As we said at the very beginning, the first thing David does is he goes to have the ark brought back to Jerusalem. And so uh, before kind of diving into that, we need to kind of answer the question what the ark was. What is the ark? What is the Ark of the Covenant? Um, right, if you've, uh, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, uh, that is incredibly accurate as far as, it's not accurate at all. Um, but it gives you a sense, that's, that's the way in which most of us understand the Ark of the Covenant to be. So what is the Ark? Well, first the Ark was a, is a box. It's about four feet long, two feet wide, two feet tall, uh, and it contained objects for Israel. It contained a jar of manna. Uh, that was the bread that God provided for the nation of Israel as they were in the wilderness after they led out of the exodus before they got to the promised land when God provided for his people. And so there's a jar of that to remind them of God's provision. There's also the two stone tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on. And so to remind them, this is God's revelation. His, we have not only God who provides, but God who speaks. And lastly, it would, uh, also had Aaron's budded staff. So Moses' brother Aaron, when there was a whole exchange with Pharaoh, there was a point in which his staff actually ballooned and had flowers uh, grow from it and showed the power of God. Uh, and so that was in there as well. And this was, this ark represented, it was the center point of worship for the nation of Israel. Uh, God told his people in Exodus 25, 22, when referencing the ark, he said, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, cherubim are angels, and there are these two angels, again, if you've seen Indiana Jones, but two angels with wings covering uh, the top of it. And it was from between the two cherubim, those two angels that are on the ark of the testimony. And I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And so God says, it's there at the ark that I will meet with you and I will speak with you. So it was the center point. It was the, the embodiment of God's presence. For his people. There you had the meeting God and the speaking God, relationship with God and revelation from God. It was the center point of worship. And it was placed within the most holy places, the holy of holies, within the tabernacle that was kind of a portable temple, kind of like a portable church, if you will. They unpacked it and packed it. We're not the first portable church in the Bible. Moses was doing it way before we were. And they packed it up and unpacked it every single time they moved. And within that center point, there was this holy of holies that had the Ark of the Covenant there. That's where God's presence dwelt. And then the, later, after David, saw, uh, David's son Solomon builds a temple, and within it, again, is the Holy of Holies, and that's where the ark uh, dwelt. And it's there that God's presence manifested itself. It's there that God met with and spoke with his people. So that's what the ark was. It was the center point of worship. Now, where was the ark? It's the other thing we have to ask. Why is David having to bring it back to Jerusalem? 
Well, we haven't heard about the Ark of the Covenant since 1 Samuel 5, 6, in the very beginning of 7. Um, it kind of just disappeared there for just about the entirety of 1 Samuel. And in it, we saw Israel try to use it almost as a, a lucky rabbit's foot, thinking that if they just let it out, it didn't matter what their relationship with God was like. As long as it was there, uh, it would defeat God's enemies. Uh, but God said, no, you may have my furniture, but you don't have my presence. Uh, and they lost the Philistines, and the Philistines captured it. But now it's interesting, as the ark was going around the Philistine camp, uh, just trouble followed it everywhere it went. Uh, and so uh, plagues broke out, and the Philistines were like, listen, we don't want it anymore. It passed around a few cities, eventually made its way back to Israel. And when it gets there, some of the Israelites look inside of it, and they're struck dead. So the Israelites are like, well, we don't want to deal with it. And so they send it over to this little hill in this guy's house named Abinadab. That was the very beginning of chapter 7, and we hadn't heard about it since. And David, the very first thing he does now as the king of established, he says, we need that back in the center point of this nation because that's where God's presence dwells and we cannot go anywhere without the presence of God. And so it's interesting that as you see the difference between Saul and David, Saul was king the entire time that it was in Abinadab, but Saul didn't care about the presence of God. Saul just wanted the blessings of God. And David said, no, before we do anything, I need him. Saul wanted God's blessings. David wanted God. And he longed to be in his presence. And friends, this is not only in the Old Testament. This is the very heart of Christianity. That the very center point in our worship is this entering into the presence of God and establishing a relationship with him. Everything else flows out of that. This is the jugular vein of our faith in this experience we have with God's presence. And we are just in awe of the authentic relationship that we have with him as we then enter into that presence. And we, we know this. If you've ever been around the presence of greatness, of someone who's great, there's something about even just being close to them that we feel. But I had the opportunity this past week, this past Thursday, to go up to Augusta uh, National Club up in Augusta, Georgia, and see the first round of the Masters. And, of course, I had to work in a sermon illustration somehow because I went to the Masters last week. So if you're unfamiliar with Masters, it is the, one of the greatest sporting events this world has ever seen. Um, it is a golf tournament. It's, it's, I need to not talk about it too long because I need to preach. Um, but it was great. Um, pimento cheese sandwiches for $1.50. I mean, if nothing else, that's incredible. Moving on. As you're there, though, you're able to see one of, the, one of the incredible things while we were there. We got to see some of the greatest athletes in the world walk feet from within us. Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson. Brooks Kepka, like these guys that are just uh, legends. And as Tiger walks by, you, you can see there's something different about Tiger, right? You also know when you get to a point in your life when you can just say one word and people know who you are, that's when you know you made it. Tiger, LeBron, uh, these guys were Prince. These were the guys, you say one word, you know who they are. Tiger, there's just something different about him. And you can sense that as you're at this golf tournament. And all these golfers, 150, 170 or so of them are kind of ushering through. But there's this one huge crowd that's following this one guy all throughout. And every shot, every birdie that's made, there's this roar. And it's, it's known as the tiger roar because it's different from every other roar that happens there in the crowd when a tiger does something. And as we were there, you saw people were crowding just to get close to him. And I was, as I was there and he walked right in front of me, there is something about being in the presence of greatness, of that kind of athlete, of that kind of celebrity that's just different from relationships that we have with other people. And friends, as, as David understood, being close to the greatness and presence of God, there is just something different that's encountered there. You can feel the power that's there.
You can feel the greatness that you're around. And David will long for that presence as the deer longs for water. So my soul longs after you, the psalmist writes. This is the very heartbeat of Christianity, experiencing that presence. And so David says, this is the first thing we have to do, get the ark back. But then we get in the second story here, the second part of the chapter in verses 6 through 13, as we see as it's being transported, the irreverence of Uzzah. Right, so as it's being transported in verse 5, David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of firwood instruments, lyres, harps, tangerines, sistrums, cymbals, electric guitars, and pianos. And they were having a worship service. That being in the presence of God led to their worship. But we see as it's being transported in verse 6 that they came to Nacon's threshing floor and Uzzah, the son of Abinadab, where the, where the ark was, he'd been watching the ark. Uzzah reached out to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. So just to be clear, the oxen is uh, transporting this ark on a cart. He stumbles. Maybe it looks a little shaky. And Uzzah goes, oh, make sure it doesn't fall on the ground. This is the ark. This is the center point of our worship. I need to make sure it doesn't fall on the ground and get dirty. And he reaches out to grab, to grab it, make sure it doesn't fall. And immediately it says, God struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence, for his error. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah. And we read that. And the, the natural response, I was talking with somebody um, recently about this chapter. And they said, that just isn't a God that I want to worship, I don't think. I mean, it feels like an overreaction. Like, seriously, God, he was, it was a good motive. He didn't want the ark to fall. Like, how are you going to respond like that out of such a good intention and a good motive? Well, there's, that feeling is entirely understandable, so much so. That's the way that David responds. I don't know if you saw that as we read. In verse 8, it says, David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And we see David's creativity then. So he named that place Outburst Against Uzzah. There <laughs> we go, David. But David has that same visceral reaction. God, how could you respond like this? And so there's a couple of things that are encouraging from that. First of all, know that as we wrestle through faith, and it will be a wrestle. Uh, as we wrestle through, know that you're not the only one that's wrestled through it. You read through the Bible, and the Bible is full of heroes who are fallen. The Bible is full of heroes who struggle with God, who struggle with their faith. And the Bible is incredibly honest. Goodness, you're making this up. You aren't going to say, hey, by the way, our hero, our new king, got really mad at our God. But this is honest. As we see, then David gets angry. And so one of the reasons why I say that is both encourage you. Be honest about the wrestle that you have with your faith. So we said it earlier, if you're not a Christian, we want to have those conversations. But goodness, if you're a Christian, we want to have those conversations. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you won't struggle with your faith. Doesn't mean that you won't go through difficult times or questioning or being angry. So we don't, again, we don't want to just hide our head in the sand. We should have conversations and ask, who is God? Does he meet us then in this emotion? Because one of the things that we see from David is that while he was angry against God, God was with him in it, saw him through it, and we saw David continue to worship him for the rest of his life. And so know that you're not alone uh, in dealing with this. This was David's reaction as well. But God, seriously, he just wanted to make sure it didn't fall. Well, there's a few things that we need to understand before we get to this chapter to understand just why God responded this way. And there's three things that Uzzah didn't realize and understand. First, Uzzah didn't understand God's law. Uzzah didn't understand what God had already said concerning the ark. 
God was crystal clear about the ark, and he gave instructions on how it was to be preserved, how it was to be kept, and how he was to be worshipped. In Exodus and in Numbers, God made it abundantly clear. In Numbers, he said that the ark had to be covered with a curtain from the tabernacle. So it had to be covered over so that people didn't look in it. But then also, uh, it had to make sure that no one touched it. It had to be carried with poles. It had little circles on it. These little poles and the Levites would transport it. So first of all, already we see an issue because no one's carrying the ark. No one's holding it with poles. It's on a cart carried by oxen. Honestly, probably even God giving that instruction to make sure a situation like this didn't happen. But he told them, you cannot touch it. And so this story alone, then, should give us all we need to know about the attitude that would say, well, I can worship God however I want. It's the heart that matters. It's personal. You can't judge me. As long as my motive is good, then I can go and do whatever I want to for God. As this story shows us that is not true. God is the only one who can decide how he is to be worshipped. And he has told us that. And so it's the same thing as we see God laying out these instructions for the ark. He's not just doling out rules for the sake of just putting out rules as a dictator. He's doing it as a protector. Right? If any of you have had children, you've probably had to tell them, hey, don't put that metal knife in that electrical outlet. That's probably not the wisest thing you can do with your life. If you do it, Bad things will happen. So you either go and get those little outlet covers and stick in there, or you make sure the rule is crystal clear with them. Do not touch it. Don't touch it. If you touch it, you will die. And at times it may lead to discipline or it may lead to a harsh tone, making sure that they understand you can't do that. Now, as you lay out that rule, it's not just because you want to be harsh or a dictator. It's because you want to save your child's life. And God here is telling his people, don't touch it. Because if you do, you will die. You will lose your life. He's protecting his people. And so Uzzah doesn't, either doesn't realize it, doesn't take it seriously, just doesn't acknowledge it. But regardless, it's out of his mind and he reaches out to grab it. Now why? Why was that the rule? Why would people die? Why was it that people couldn't touch it? Well, these are the, the two other things that Uzzah didn't realize. So he didn't realize God's law, but he also didn't understand God's holiness. He didn't understand just who God was. That God is holy. That God is unlike anything this world has ever seen. That God's holiness, that word means that He is set apart. He is unlike anything. He is perfect. He is flawless. He is blameless. He is pure. He is holy. It's the, the, there are many different attributes of God. God is love. God is just. God is gracious. God is faithful. This is the one we see in Scripture, both in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation 4, that it's repeated three times about him, that God is holy, holy, holy. This is the attribute of God that sets all the others in their place, that God's love isn't just love, it is a holy love. His faithfulness is not just faithfulness, it's a holy faithfulness. It is unlike anything else. And God himself is holy, holy, holy. And whenever people in the Bible had an interaction with this holy God in their present state, it was the same reaction every time. We saw it with Job when Job had the interaction with God. We saw it with Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus' humanity was pulled back and his divinity shone. And we see it with John in Revelation whenever he sees Jesus returning. And in each of these situations, as they see this holy God, each of them are scared to death. They fall, trembling with fear. 
because they can feel the power that they're around. And they know what probably is going to come their way. In the presence of a holy God, there is no room for sin. And so God is completely holy. He is unlike anything else. It's one of the things I think that we as a church, particularly in the West, have tried almost intentionally to do and kind of knock down how, just how different God is from us. We want to try to make him more like us. He is, he is, uh, he is yes, yes, he's God, but he, he's, our, he's our boy. Right? There's that old t-shirt that when I was growing up way back in the day, people would wear, Jesus is my homeboy. And we try to bring God down closer to our level. And yes, God does come down to our level. That's the whole point of the incarnation. But what makes that so incredible is just how transcendent he is, that he is holy, that he has no business around sin. And if he does, then it would utterly be consumed. God is holy. And that's why he puts the law down. Say, don't touch it because my presence is there. And where my presence is, then no one can come into it with sin. Because that's the, second, the third thing that Uzzah didn't realize. Not only God's holiness, but also his sinfulness. Uzzah didn't understand God's law, what God had said about it. Didn't understand God's holiness, that God was holy. But he also didn't understand his sinfulness. You see, Uzzah saw the ark falling towards the ground, and he thought, oh, man, this is the center of our worship. This is where God meets with and speaks with his people. Uh, it's going to fall in the dirt, it seems like. I need to make sure that it doesn't because the ground is dirty. I need to reach out and keep it from that. I don't need to fall on the ground. The ground is dirty. But Uzzah's problem is that he assumed that his hand was less dirty than the ground was. Because you see, the reality is that the dirt on the ground around the ark never rejected God's authority. Or rebelled against its creator. It never lifted its metaphorical dusty hands and in essence said, hey God, I've got this. And rebelled against a holy God. But Uzzah's hands had. You see, it wasn't the touch of dirt that would pollute the ark. It was the touch of man. And we don't understand God's judgment because we don't understand his holiness or our sin. That in that relationship between a holy God and a sinful people, when they two come in contact, one is completely consumed by the other. And it is not God and his holiness. And this is what we see over and over again in the Old Testament as God then consumes that which is against him and opposed to him. And it's why God is so meticulous about these rules, both with the ark and around his presence and in his worship in the tabernacle and in the temple. He says, here is where my presence is in the Holy of Holies. No one can come in there. No one, except for one man, once a year, the high priest of Israel was allowed to go into that place, into God's presence. But only after this uh, extreme process and rites of purification to make sure that he could enter in, to be able to do one thing, to offer the, uh, to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of the ark. The sacrifice of an innocent, spotless, and blameless lamb to act as the atonement and sacrifice in the place of the sins of Israel. And in that moment then, the high priest then sprinkles the blood and this lamb that died in the place of the people for a year then, their, their sin was atoned for, their sin was forgiven, and God's presence could continue to dwell with his people. But that was only once a year, and it was only one man. They say too that they would tie a rope around his leg just in case he did something wrong and he fell down dead. That way they could just pull him out because if anyone else walked in, they would also die. And this is what we see whenever holiness comes in contact with sin. But it's like throwing a roll of toilet paper at the sun. This is what happens 
and just how holy God is. And we do not understand it. But David was beginning to get it. David saw what happened to Uzzah. And he's like, how in the world could that come to me? And he, again, diverts it to this other guy. But God begins to bless that family. And after three months, it comes back to David. And he says, David, listen, God is blessing this family. And David's like, that's right. There was this, they, they temporarily broke up. They were on a, they were on a break, uh, David and God. But he sees, that's right. I, I know that God is holy. I know that I am sinful. But God has made a way for him to dwell with his people. And David starts to get it. You see in verse 13 that after he has that realization to then bring it back. And it was reported to him that uh, Obed-Edom's house was being blessed. David then, verse 13, when those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps. So pause real quick. Notice one thing that's changed. Those carrying the ark. David remembered. That's right. God's told us how to interact with him. God has told us how to worship him. God has told us how we as sinful people can come into the presence of a holy God. And it continues then in verse 10, after the, those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fat calf. David remembers, that's right, God, God has told us. The way in which a sinful people can have into, enter into the presence of a holy God is through the sacrifice of another. There's a way. Yes, our sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death. But God has said there's a way for our sin to be transferred to another. And for this animal to die in our place. And for a year at least, we can have this confidence that we can have this relationship with a holy God. And he offers this sacrifice. Again, this is leading up to uh, the understanding of just what happens on the Day of Atonement for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. On that day when the priest walked into the Holy of Holies. And there was that spotless sacrifice that died in the place of his people. God said, there is a way. Yes, sin is serious and it requires death. But I am not only holy and just and righteous, I am also gracious and loving and merciful. And I'm going to make a way when there was no way. And you can transfer actually your sin and your punishment onto another. And that other can die in your place. Another thing you need to realize is that an animal wasn't good enough. It had to be done every single year. And that then we see David as he brings the ark back to Jerusalem. As he makes the sacrifice to God. And he begins then this restored relationship. What's David's response in verse 14? We see then the joy of David's salvation. Look at his response. David was dancing with all of his might before the Lord. David worshiped. There's a joy that welled up in his heart. With all of his might, he was dancing before the Lord. Now some of, quick uh, side note, because some of your translations may say that he was dancing before the Lord with all of his might with no clothes on. He was naked. As a middle school boys, I grew up, this was just at the heading of my chapter. It said, David danced naked before the Lord. And it's like 1 Samuel was written, 2 Samuel was written for middle school boys sometimes. <laughs> but in it, we see Hebrew scholars have told us that this phrase here doesn't actually mean naked. It means he was stripped down to his uh, undergarments, to this linen ephod. So David's dancing, in essence, in his underroots, in his boxers, in his briefs, as he is dancing before the Lord, humiliating himself, yes. Uh, but he is uh, dancing in this linen ephod. It's apparently very comfortable. Linen, nice, coming. maybe they sell them at Target, who knows. Um, but regardless, this is what David's doing. He's dancing with all of his might, completely humiliating himself. David knew his sin. He knew God's holiness. And he knew that God had made a way for him to have a relationship with his creator. And that reality led him to joy. It led him to celebrate. It led him to dance like nobody was watching. 
And we see verse 16 then, his wife, which interesting enough here isn't references his wife, it references Saul's daughter, Michael. Looks down from the window, saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Michael's in the window, and she sees her husband, but here, Saul's daughter, and that's important because of the link the author's trying to make. Looks down, sees David filled with joy, completely humiliating himself, and she's sitting here thinking, This is my husband, the king. This is no way for a king to act. What will people think of him? They won't be afraid of him. They won't see him as this great and mighty king. They're going to see him as this dancing idiot. And she despised him. She was more concerned about what people thought than what God thought. And she was no different from her father. I think that's why the author makes that point here and says that she is Saul's daughter. Saul had the exact same concern. He cared about what people thought about him. But we see David is the opposite. David was exclusively concerned with what God thought of him. And so we get then down to the confrontation between David and Michael in verse 20. And David returns home to bless his household. And Saul's daughter, again, that phrase, Saul's daughter Michael came out to meet him. Oh, how the king of Israel honored himself today. You can hear in passive aggressive sarcasm. He exposed himself today in the sight of the slave girls of his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. She's frustrated at the way in which he's humiliated, humiliated himself and the throne. But David says, you don't get it. Verse 21, he then confronts her. And he gets a little smack talk of his own. He says, you don't get it, do you? It was before the Lord who chose me over your father and his whole family to appoint me as ruler. You hear what David's saying? Michael, I just want to make sure you understand. God chose me and not your dad. God chose me and no one else in your family. He chose me. And he appointed me as the ruler over God's people. But he did it when I was nobody. God chose me when I was some shepherd teenager that my family didn't even believe in. And God said, that's my man. And here's the deal, Michael. Now that I am something, now that I am king, I want to make sure that people know that I got here not because of my strength, but because of my God. And so I will actually humiliate myself, not only humiliate myself, but I will, uh, I will humble myself even more and bring even more dishonor to my name so that people would see that all of the glory belongs to God and not to me. Verse 22 is exactly what he says. I will dishonor myself and humble myself even more than this. Because I'm not concerned about getting the glory. I want to push it all back up to God. And so it will be even worse than what you've seen here. And so he confronts her and says, this is what it has led to. My understanding of what God has done to me has led me to joy, led me to worship, led me to humble myself in his sight. And I don't care what people think because I know what God thinks. And he was free to be able to worship his God in a way that didn't make sense to someone who had no relationship with him. And so as we see these different categories, I want to walk back through them real quick and kind of then take them and apply them to our lives and to our hearts today. So first, going back to verses 1 through 5, understanding then not just the presence of God, but understanding you and God's presence. You and God's presence. Because the reality is, is that, yes, the, the story in verses 1 through 5 is all about the ark, but we don't have the ark today. No one's seen it for about 2,500 years, except for Harrison Ford. <laughs> and so we read this, we go, okay, yeah, that's cool, but I mean, how does that apply to me in the ark today? Listen, Israel had this presence with God within their camp. It was separated in this room that only one man once a year could go into. Apart from that, they couldn't enter into the presence like that. 
because they would be killed. But they loved it. And that was the center point. The fact that they were completely amazed that God would dwell with his people at all. But friends, in our relationship now with God, in this new covenant, there is access that we have to the presence of God that the Old Testament saints would have dreamed of. We have not just access through a high priest once a year into the presence of God. Friends, you have access to God's very word, God's very ear, and God's very family. Through the Bible, through prayer, and through a local church. You have access that was unknown to them. You have access to a speaking, a listening, and a familial God. And so we hear God speak to us through this word. It's here that we see God changing us, ushering us into his presence, showing us who he is, what he has done for us. You neglect this and you neglect God's presence. And not only can we listen to God, we can speak to him. We have a God who listens. Jesus who's mediating on our behalf, interceding on our behalf. We have a God that when we speak, he hears us. And we can pray to him. And when we neglect to pray, we neglect his presence. We also have these local churches that he has established. And Jesus has said, listen, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. There is a uniqueness to the presence of Jesus Christ whenever his people gather together. And you neglect the gathering of the saints in a local church. You neglect the unique presence of God. And so we neglect any of these and we neglect experiencing God's presence. But secondly, not only you and God's presence, but also you and your irreverence. And so we look at Uzzah and we can think, okay, that's great, but I'm not going to touch the ark again because the ark isn't around. But for us, we need to make sure we don't make the same mistake Uzzah did. That we both begin to acknowledge God's holiness and acknowledge our sinfulness. And we see that we don't come to worship Jesus as our homeboy, but we worship God as our holy creator. And this is what the author of Hebrew writes in Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29. It says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And by it, may we serve God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Friends, those two words, reverence and awe. How many do they describe worship services in Christian churches today? Or is God just our homeboy that we can go and hang out with? Just kind of do whatever and, and worship him however we may want. Or do we approach God with a sort of reverence and awe that his word calls for because of how holy he is? I was talking with um, one of my friends uh, who's been raised Catholic. I was just asking her, I said, What's, what would you say is one of the critiques you would have of the Protestant church today? She said, well, as I go and visit, said, honestly, it just feels like there is no reverence there. So for all the things that, that we disagree with in the Catholic Church, I thought she absolutely nailed it. As we come to God, we come without an understanding of just how holy He is, that He is a consuming fire, that we serve and worship Him acceptably with reverence and with awe. May we not make the same mistake as it did. And may our worship be marked with those two words. But it's not just that. The danger is that you can stop there and begin to imagine God to be this scary thing that we can't come into his presence. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible wants us to make sure we understand just how holy God is. That he is unapproachable. 
and just how sinful we are because it's then that we begin to understand just how amazing the cross is. And I find it so profound, that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the people of Israel, that curtain that was laid over the ark when it was transported in the tabernacle, I find it so profound in the Gospels, both Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention this, that the first thing that happens when Jesus breathed his last, do you know what it was? Mark puts it this way in chapter 15, verses 37 and 38. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. And then the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. Immediately, suddenly, then when Jesus offered up himself as a perfect sacrifice and cried out, it is finished. The very first thing that happened is that curtain, that veil that separated the holiness of God from a sinful people was split open because of Jesus' sacrifice. There was now this offering that was given to God that did not have to be done once a year anymore, but it was done once and for all. As we saw not this spotless lamb from the field of Israel, but we saw the lamb of God who has come now to take away the sins of the world. Whenever he breathed his last, that veil was torn and there was an access to God that people had never had before. As Jesus absorbed for himself the penalty of our sin, the wrath of God that was meant for us, Jesus took it all on himself. He drank the cup there on the cross. Friends, the most terrifying thing about the cross in Jesus' eyes was not the cross, it was the cup. The cup of wrath that he would have to take and drink in our place, taking on that punishment. What Uzzah received in chapter 6 was nothing compared to what Jesus received there on the cross. As he held not the ark, but he held nails in his hand and bore on his back the sin of the world. And God's wrath was poured out on him. Our sin was dealt with and everyone who believes and trusts in Jesus, then Jesus' perfect life. His righteousness is then given to us. And we see this exchange that happens. Our sin placed on him and his righteousness placed on us. And so now, whenever we come before a holy God, we can boldly approach the throne of grace, not in our own merit, but in the merit of another. Because this is the reality that we understand what happens in the gospel. That the greater and greater God's holiness gets in our eyes. And the more and more we acknowledge how sinful we are, then the greater the cross becomes. And we are amazed that there is a way in which we can walk into the presence of God and not have to fear, but we can boldly approach his throne. And if that doesn't create in your heart joy and a response in worship like it did in David, then you are not understanding what's been offered to you. And our worship and our response to him is more than just singing. Worship is our entire life. Everything we do. So whether you eat or you drink, everything you do, do for the glory of God, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. Paul writes in Church of Rome, in Romans chapter 12, to offer your lives as living sacrifices. So to just say that worship is what we sing is a narrow view of how the Bible defines worship. But it does include our singing. It does include how it is we sing and how it is we worship. And that should inform what it looks like. Right? What should our worship look like? What should our singing look like, particularly on Sundays as we gather together? Because what it did for David and his men here, it created for them joy and dancing, and it created for them worship. I can see people beginning to get nervous, like, are we about to, are we about to go by Lennon ephods right now? Is that the application of the No. No, but we begin to understand just what God did for us, and it shapes our worship from the lessons that we learn from this text. 
that we approach God in the ways that He has prescribed in His Word with reverence and awe, and then being blown away because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we can now not only cry, holy, 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 but we can cry, Abba, Father. And the veil has been torn and a relationship is now ours to be had and God's presence is now ours to experience without fear. And that should manifest itself in His people through our worship, both in expression and emotion. Right? This is what we see in David. David didn't just worship in his heart. David started dancing. And then this is why for me and maybe some other people that, that as you see people worship, at times we may raise our hands as we sing. Right? If you're new to church or haven't been in church much, I know how strange that may look. Like, Does he have a question? Like, what's, what's happening here? Does he not understand how this works? No, what it is is a physical expression of the way in which my heart feels in the moment. That's, that's going to be different for every person. There is no one way every person should worship. The moment you begin to do that, you fall into legalism. But that's, it is a physical expression that, that expresses the emotion that I'm feeling as we are singing to and worshiping our God. You may go, well, listen, I'm not really an expressive or emotional guy. That's just not my personality. And I understand that. Listen, the, the worst thing you can do is begin to be somebody that you're not just for the sake of how you may look. That's the opposite of religion. Again, that's what we see with Saul and Michael. And I would buy that if you said you're not really emotional or expressive. If I came next week and brought you a check that had a million dollars in it with your name on it. And you looked at it and said, praise God. Thank you, brother. <laughs> if that's how you would respond, I'd go, man, man, that is his personality. Right? Keep on doing it then. But if you begin to get excited, if you begin to maybe even jump up and down, if you become undignified like David did, then it begins to tell me the reality is not that you're not expressive or emotions, that you don't understand what's being offered to you. And that's our problem. Not that we're not emotional, it's that we don't understand the gospel. You may go, well, listen, I think that awe and somber reflection should be our response to the gospel. Listen, I agree. Like we just read that in Hebrews, we should worship with reverence and awe. But the Bible gives us a whole range of emotion when responding to God and his work in our life. So yes, there are times that we should weep over our sin. There are times that we should stand in awe at His holiness and majesty. That we should quietly reflect about the truth that we're singing or being sung to us. That we should be on our face in the presence of God. But listen, friends, let me just make it clear. There are also times that we should clap your hands, all you people, and shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Our worship should not only be marked with reverence, but also with joy. And I know that there are people here that probably feel like worship, particularly men, just going to be straight here. That there are men who probably feel like worship is girly. I don't want to do that. I'm not really a singer. That's the thing that girly guys do, just worship and sing. And there's this, there is this view of masculinity that has affected many of the church that is not biblical masculinity. It's more of a John Wayne kind of masculinity. Well, howdy, partner. I'm never going to ever smile, and I'm just going to stand here and never show emotion. John Wayne accent. <laughs> and that's unfortunately infected the way in which we understand God to be calling us as men. And that is not the way the Bible talks about it. Listen, I want you to understand who we're talking about here in 2 Samuel 7, 6. Do you know who this guy is? He killed a nine-foot giant, cut off his head, and carried his head back to Jerusalem under his arm. Any of you guys done that? Yeah. No. <laughs> But you know what David also did? He danced in the presence of God because he understood what God had done for him. 
He worshipped, he sang, and he was filled with joy. And so to my friends here that are dignified in their worship on Sundays, and typically, it's just going to be straight, they come from a Baptist or Presbyterian background. You need to stop and you need to repent. That there's, this is not about just how we're expressive or how we're emotional. This is about responding to the gospel and people seeing just how precious it is to us. And to my friends here from a more Pentecostal background, understand this isn't just about emotion or about responding in a frenzy whenever the band hits a major chord or the pastor nails an alliteration. This is about making sure that we respond with joy in the gospel, not just whenever we sing on Sundays, but also in how we talk to our spouse, how we do our taxes tomorrow. <clears throat> that that response then affects not just our Sunday morning, but our entire lives. It's beyond just an emotion. It affects our whole life. And so may we be a people that's seeking after God's presence, knowing that it's there. That's the lifeblood of the Christian life, that relationship with him, entering into his presence, knowing that the God we approach is holy and has made a way for us to now boldly approach his throne. And may our worship be founded in that unbelievable thought. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? My friends, he's not only welcomed you, he's made you his child. And would we be amazed at that grace? And would we begin to sing and show it like we actually believed it? Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you so much for being God who's made a way when there was no way. We love you and we acknowledge that you are holy and we are not. And God, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, who made a way for us to then run into your presence boldly as we approach the throne. God, we love you. We thank you so much for your son and the sacrifice that he made in our place. It's in his name we pray. Amen. As we continue now to respond and worship, there's a number of ways to be able to respond. Again, so much more than singing. We will continue to sing. We're also going to respond uh, through prayer. I'll be in the back. If there's anything going on in your life, we'd love to be able to pray with you and for you. We're also going to respond through giving. But we understand giving is not done out of obligation or fear or something that we just are supposed to be doing because we have to. Giving our generosity is done in response to God's generosity to us. It's an act of worship. And so as we continue in worship, the ushers will come forward. There's a number of ways to give here at the Grove. You can give here in person. You can give online. You can give via text. If you fill out a welcome card at the beginning, you can also drop that in here. Um, or you can fill it out afterwards and take it to the Connect table. Let's continue to respond to this holy God who has welcomed us. Thank you.